God, that you would convince us of your love, not just a, a love that, that happened millennia ago on a cross, but God, a love that is real and present and true now, a love that wants to wade into the mess of our lives and be present now. Lord, we just give thanks to your love, God. We in, in, invite you to speak to us this morning. We invite your presence here this morning. In your name, amen. You guys can grab a seat. Uh, my name is Andrew, uh, and I'm excited uh, to be bringing the word of God this morning to you. Also, uh, I'm excited college football and football in general is getting started. As you can tell by my shirt color, I'm a Seminole fan. And uh, that's right. That's right. Um, also, I didn't know if you guys knew, but Jacksonville is now famous. Um, apparently, some viral videos um, were released of a gator fan running through uh, convenience stores with a real live gator saying, go gators. Um, so um, we're on the map, not in a good way. And college football season hasn't even started. So uh, I am a Seminole fan. College football is starting. And, you know, I just can't help myself. But the greatest rivalry going on in Gainesville right now with UF football is the UF football team versus the campus police. <laughs> just saying, don't boo me off the stage yet. We'll get to the word of God. As I said, I am a Seminole fan. I am excited uh, for football season and uh, if you're joining us, we are doing uh, the last of kind of a three-part series on Jesus. And the purpose of this series is to say, we really want to know Jesus Christ. We want to know his identity. And from his identity, we want to understand his words. And then from his words, we want to understand his actions. And so we're in actions right now. Guys, if I need to have a, a handheld, I'll do it. I don't want to do feedback this whole this whole time. Um, so also, just so you guys know, um, this is a Q&A series, so feel free um, to send in questions, um, comments, some thoughts that you guys might have as we go through our passage. Okay. And, uh, but just to recap, last week was our kicking off our Audacious Act series. And, you know, I thought about like recapping some of the main points Frank had, but uh, I thought it'd be really cool. Check one, check one. Awesome. Um, I thought it'd be really cool uh, just to kind of share something um, on Facebook, something that you guys posted on Facebook. I think this is the incredible beauty of the gathered worshiping community of God that we get to be a part of every Sunday, is that as we sit in here, God speaks to our hearts. We are recalibrated and refreshed for the coming week, and it's so cool to see you guys even sharing that on Facebook. So it's cool. Um, we did Q&A, and there was an answer to a question that Frank said. And he said, there's no trial or challenge that can push God to his limits. What is there that Jesus cannot do? Nothing. What is your worst-case scenario? There's no situation you can think of where God would say, hmm, that's a tricky one. Frank was talking about the wind and wave and how basically this monsoon was hitting the disciples over the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus just stood up and calmed everything. There's nothing in our lives going on that Jesus Christ cannot speak into. And it's so cool, as your pastor, to see you guys just celebrating that fact 
and even redeeming social media with that fact. That was really cool. So thank you, guys. That was my recap. Um, Let's turn to uh, Matthew 9, 1 through 8. This will be our text for this morning. Matthew 9, 1 through 8. And um, we're just going to read this text together. Starting in verse 1. So he got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Just then, some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a stretcher. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Have courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the scribes said among themselves, He's blaspheming. But perceiving their thoughts, Jesus said, Why are you thinking evil things in your heart? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? So you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he told the paralytic, Get up, pick up your stretcher, and go home. And he got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and gave glory to God, who had given such authority to men. Amen. The word of God for the people of God. Praise be to God. So let's unpack this. Again, we're talking about audacious acts here. So verse 1, and we're just going to kind of go verse by verse. Verse 1, he got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Again, we're just picking up this text this morning. And so the context of what's happening here is, is actually really close to where we left off last week. That was talked about in Matthew 8. And so what happened is Jesus, after he's calmed the wind and the waves, they get to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, this area called Gerarines. And the Sea of Galilee is like a bowl. And so they're coming up the shore, and there's caves on either side, tombs where they bury people, and there's demon-possessed men. And Jesus has a power confrontation with them. The demons are cast out. The men are in their right mind. And all the people from the surrounding towns, what do they do? They go and invite Jesus to preach and teach and heal? No. They say, dude, you got to leave. We're not ready for this stuff. We're not ready. It's kind of like you doing something really awesome and as a politician and getting low popular ratings. It's like you doing something incredible in your life and no one notices. You've just done something great for your company and you're fired. So again, the disciples had rowed over the lake, the Sea of Galilee, and now they've got to row back. I don't know about you guys, but if I'm a disciple, I'm a little tired of rowing. Jesus, I didn't sign up for this. And so this is the context. He goes back to his own town. We're talking about Capernaum here. This was kind of where his ministry was headquartered for several years. He was in Capernaum. And then also a couple things to note that that really aren't shared in in Matthew uh, yet that you guys need to know is that this is also kind of the start of when Jesus faces opposition. 
it's almost like the more audacious his acts become so that he may glorify the Father, the more opposition he's going to face. So this marks the uh, beginning of opposition. This account also of healing this paralyzed man that we're going to begin to get into, it happens in both other Gospels. It happens in Mark. It also happens in Luke. And the account in Mark, um, it, the word count is 196. The account in Luke is 212 words. I just share that because that's, that's weird. Matthew speaks about this the least. Well, Matthew is definitely a longer gospel than Mark's. So that doesn't make sense. So why in the world would Matthew speak about this account least? Well, the answer is Matthew's not an eyewitness to this account yet. The call of Matthew isn't going to happen until later in this gospel. So Matthew doesn't see this. He's only heard that this has happened. And one of the important things that we need to know about Matthew because he's only heard up to this point. Everything up to this point in Matthew's gospel is only things that he has heard. He's not seen with his actual eyes. Is then what's the point? Why is he writing? I mean, why is Matthew 1 through 9 even written if he didn't see it himself? Well, I think it's cool he, he had a chance to t- talk to the guy who actually did all the things and be discipled by Christ. But we have to understand what is Matthew's purpose for his gospel? Matthew's purpose for his gospel is twofold. One, he wants to let everyone know that Jesus Christ has the power and the authority to forgive sins. That's it, those two things. That Jesus forgives sins and that Jesus has the authority to do so. As we teach and preach through this passage, that's gonna come to light. That's why Matthew includes this. And that's a cool thing as you guys read and study the Bible for yourselves. You know, a lot of the stories that happen in the Gospels, they happen in other places as well. And one of the cool things you can do is actually you can read them side by side. And so in, when you study the Bible, you can study the story of Matthew, and then you can study the story of Mark, and then you can study the story of Luke. And they all have different details that come to light. They give us a fully contoured picture of what's going on. And this is actually a reason to trust the Bible. And so we'll get into even what some of those differences are as well. Verse 2, just then some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a mat. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, have courage, son, your sins are forgiven. So a a couple things, Um, Matt, Matthew doesn't mention it, but Mark and Luke mention it. Just then some men brought to him. That's all we get. In Mark and Luke, we learn that Jesus was teaching in a house and it was a packed house. And that these men who brought this paralytic on a mat, on a stretcher to Jesus actually removed the roofing materials, removed the thatching, removed the tiles, and were able to lower this paralyzed man because they couldn't get through the front door. This is the manner in which the man was brought to Jesus. And then we see 
Matthew say he was lying on a mat? What's really interesting here, too, is in Greek, this word lying, beblimenon, it means set aside carelessly, discarded, or even confined, maybe, to his mat. And so what does that mean? I mean, I'm just thinking, hey, if I'm lowering this paralytic through a roof and I've removed all the roof and, and my four friends are there and we're lowering him, at some point, like that paralyzed man's gonna have to drop. I mean, is that what it's saying? Is that they're like, hey, we're gonna lower the guy through the roof and he's gonna have to drop three or four feet to the ground and hopefully someone will help him or so, hopefully someone will grab him, but we're just gonna discard him on the ground and you know what? Jesus is gonna heal him anyways. That's why we're here, right? Or is it talking about the manner in which he is lying in this mat? You see, I thought about bringing um, my wife's yoga mat up here. Because, see, we have mats that we use, and, and they get a little sweaty, and they're little workout mats. They look nice. But this isn't what this is talking about. This mat we're talking about is a place where this paraplegic, this paralyzed man has been living for an untold amount of time. It's probably filthy, unwashed, possibly stained with food and urine and waste. It is a filthy mat that is dropped into a teaching scenario where everybody is probably dressed their best, excited to hear a rabbi come and share with them. And the mat is probably more an indicator of this man's social status. He is dirty, deplorable, and confined and unwanted because he's paralyzed. And that had religious connotations as well. Because if you see, if, if you were someone like that in society, that obviously meant that you had done something wrong. God was punishing you. You were sinful or your parents were sinful and you were under the curse of sin. And so here we see a man cursed by sin who is filthy and dirty and he is dropped in the middle of a polite teaching gathering. And Jesus sees their faith. And I don't know how Jesus sees that. I don't know what that looks like. But I can guess that what that looks like is this paralyzed man heard that Jesus was coming, rounded up. Maybe he had a few friends. Maybe he grabbed passerbys. And he said, listen, can you get me in front of him? Because he'll heal me. And Jesus sees that desperation. And he sees the desperation of being able to be dropped through a ceiling. And he sees that, and then he looks in the, at the paralytic, and he says, have courage. Son, your sins are forgiven. I love have courage, but I think it's, it's a, a beautiful, tender touch. In, in Greek, courage can also be tharsi, which is comfort. And so Jesus is seeing this paralyzed man, and he says, be comforted. And so if you're the paralyzed man, if you're the audience and you know that Jesus has healed people before, what's coming next is going to be awesome. This man is going to be healed. Jesus does not do that. 
Jesus says, again, in tenderness, son, my child, your sins are forgiven. Jesus ignores this man's physical needs and addresses his spiritual condition. This is difficult for us to understand. But see, Jesus understands that this man's spiritual condition is actually worse off than his physical condition. This man's spiritual condition is far worse than what everyone sees externally, that he's a paraplegic, confined and discarded to a mat that is filthy. And Jesus says, actually, your spiritual condition is worse than that. Let's keep reading. Before we do, Matthew one twenty one. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And here we see Jesus in Matthew 9, verse 2, healing his people from their sins. In fact, in Matthew, it is the only recorded instance where Jesus singles out one person, and forgives their sins. And you know what's even fascinating? Is there's no confession of faith. There's no verbal confession of faith from this paralytic that Matthew lets on. All we know is Jesus sees his faith. Verse 3. At this time, some of the scribes said among themselves, He's blaspheming! You know, you kind of think of like that Scrooge, bespectable look, like blasphemer. That's what they're like thinking in their hearts. So you don't know who the scribes are at this time. They are like experts in the law. And we would think that's like, oh, they're like lawyers. It goes even past that. You see, they're not just experts in like civil law, like lawyers, but they're experts in Jewish ceremonial cleansing law. They're kind of like lawyers and pastors at one, God forbid. They are the expert, erudite academics when it comes to the law. And they said among themselves, he's blaspheming, they were not consulted on this act of forgiveness. You ever not been consulted about something and a decision was made? And you can kind of like have that your own internal anger. I wasn't talked to about this. My wife made that decision without me. We can do the same thing sometimes as scribes, experts in our own opinion. He's blaspheming. What's really cool is it's, it's almost this note of derision towards Jesus. Who is this Galilean rabbi, this redneck Jew out here in Podunk, Capernaum by fishing villages that, that we hear heals people and we actually come to hear what he's saying and he forgives people too. This is the attitude of the scribes. Um, what's interesting though, at that time in, in Jewish 
um, understanding of blasphemy, only pronouncing the full name of God, only pronouncing Yahweh aloud was considered blasphemy. Or associating yourself with Yahweh somehow as his messenger. And the reason why is because at this time in Judaism, they're waiting for the Messiah. They're waiting for the one who's going to put everything right again. Who's going to clearly display that he is from God. Not start his ministry off in podunk fishing villages. And they saw Jesus assuming divine aspects. They saw Jesus taking on the power and majesty of God. Even though he did not say he was God yet, they saw him do that. And so they said, he is worthy of stoning. He is worthy of death. Right? We just talked about that. This is when opposition to Jesus is going to start to kick up. Verse 4, but perceiving their thoughts, Jesus said, why are you thinking evil things in your heart? You know, I thought about like giving you the Greek on like perceiving their thoughts, but let's just be honest. Jesus knows. Like that's what Matthew's trying to say. Like Jesus knows what they were thinking. He knew what they were saying among themselves. Hearts, I think that is important to share because hearts really... Um, you know, we think of this as like this beating vessel that provides oxygenated blood to our body. But in their thought, hearts was much more, more than the mind. It was actually the seat of your collective will, thought, and emotion. That was your heart. And Jesus invites these scribes, these religious leaders, these experts he invites them to examine their motivation. You know what? Jesus Christ invites us to examine our motivation as well today. He invites them to examine their motivation. And here's what Matthew says about hearts. You see, in Matthew 5.8, he says, The pure in heart are blessed, for they will see God. Oh, the irony and tragedy that God is in their midst and these scribes do not have pure hearts and they are not seeing God. Matthew 15, 19. Where does sin come from? For from the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adultery, sexual moralities, thefts, false testimonies, blasphemies. Blasphemies. Again, if we understand what the scribes were doing, they said, Jesus, you're reaching into what's only God's, only God's divine power and majesty can forgive sins. Again, the irony and tragedy is that they are the ones blaspheming because Jesus is rightfully God. And so they are the ones reaching into the divine power and majesty of God and trying to strip it. Jesus then asks the next question, for which is easier to say in verse 5, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? So I'd love to, like, replay this scenario. And some of you guys like awkward silence, and you like awkwardness, and some of you, I'm sure, are pained by awkwardness. 
Let's recreate this scenario, starting with Jesus' questions. Why are you thinking evil things in your hearts? For which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? It's awkward in the room, right? Everyone's like, this silence is deafening. There's these scribes, these leaders, these experts in the law, and they are not answering the question. I'm sure if you're a, a teacher and an educator, you know the feeling, right? You ask a question that you think your classroom knows, and it's like, oh, no, <laughs> they don't know the answer. <laughs> like, oh, no. And it's funny, but in a painful sort of way, this is what's going on. There's a painful awkwardness that sometimes when we just read through the Bible really quickly, we don't get. So I'm sorry if I wasted 30 seconds of some time with awkward silence for you this morning. But when we read scripture, sometimes it's important for just the awkwardness around Jesus is sometimes so rich and good and makes you laugh. And then for some of you, it's so painful. And so the obvious answer, right, is that it's easier to forgive sin. No one's going to know if his sins are really forgiven. It's a whole lot harder to say, get up and walk. But then when you really start thinking about the answer and you really start thinking about sin and you really start dwelling on it, and this is where I think the scribes are. The scribes are saying it's a whole lot harder to forgive sin. Verse 6, and this is, this is the ground for the whole story. This is the ground for the entire gospel of Matthew. This verse we could just camp on. But so that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He's looking at the scribes. He's looking at the scribes. Then he turns to the paralytic. And I think that's important. Jesus is looking at the scribes. He's making sure the scribes get the answer. And then he looks at the paralytic and says, get up, pick up your mat, and go home. What's beautiful about this in, in Greek, this, this whole um, sentence, this whole clause is a purpose clause. And purpose clauses are great. But when a purpose clause introduces content you also see something happening that's divine. And Matthew's trying to say, this is divine. What's happening in this sentence is divine. And what does Jesus tell the scribes? The son of man, he makes it easy for them. 
the Son of Man, they would have known who the Son of Man was from Daniel. We talked about it early in the summer, Jesus' identity as the Son of Man. They would have known who the Son of Man was as the Messiah who was coming. And so Jesus makes it really easy for them to understand who he is. The Son of Man has, again, what does Matthew want to prove? That he has authority and that he is able to forgive. He has authority to forgive sins. And then he tells the paralytic man, pick up your mat and go home. What's interesting about this is the commands, get up, is not a command. When Matthew writes this, get up is not a command. The commands in Greek are pick up your mat and go home. And I think this is really fascinating too. The reason why it's not a command is Jesus already sees the man as healed and hold. Not because he's unable to walk and he's a paraplegic. Jesus already sees the man healed and hold because his sins are forgiven. So the command is just be as one walking. You're healed, you're forgiven. Pick up your mat, pick up the utter filth and worthlessness that I have forgiven you of and go home. And I think we just need to realize that forgiveness of our sin inaugurates a healing and a wholeness that we have, not just for this life, but the life to come. Jesus tells him to go home. We have to remember that Jesus calls us paralytic, my son. Jesus is saying, welcome to the family. You've been adopted. You're a son. Go home. Become part of the new kingdom with a new king. When our sins are forgiven, that's our home. And to the scribes, it's a challenge. Here's proof that I can do both. Both forgive and heal. So if you have questions, um, send them in, awakenqna at gmail.com. Uh, go ahead and type them up. We'll tackle the last two verses. Verse 7, it's a really long one. And he got up and went home. I love it. It's just simple obedience to the commands of Jesus. I guess one question for us, though, is why does he pick up his mat? I mean, why does Jesus want this man to pick up the filth that he has been lying in for we don't know how long? It's a sign of his uncleanness. It's a sign of his sin. It's a sign of his, the social derision and curse that society felt like he was a part of. Again, I don't know exactly why Jesus, but I, I, I want to guess that Jesus said pick up his mat for two reasons. Number one, the mat is no longer going to define you. What's going to define you now is that you are a walking son who's been healed. Amen, right? Your sin is no longer going to define you, but you as a walking son we as walking children of God who our sins have been forgiven define us. Not sins. And then the second thing that I think was Jesus is entrusting this man with a little bit of responsibility. Jesus is saying, hey, now that you are a son, now that you're able to walk, now that you've been healed, take care of your mat. 
take care of that. Go wash that. Go burn that. Like, handle that mat. Get it out of here. I feel like he entrusts us with the same things as his children, that there is sin in our lives that he has forgiven us from, and he no longer wants us to ignore it, but to be responsible. As parents, we know this. We are, our goal is training children. We want our children to be responsible, contributing parts of the family. If we allow our kid to stay in their crib, we don't change them, we don't wash them, it's going to get nasty and filthy and stinky. And Jesus is giving this man responsibility. Um, again, I love the tenderness of my son and my child. Verse 8, when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and gave glory to God who had given such authority to men. So we talked a little bit about kind of at the start studying your Bible and maybe just going a little bit slower and reading things slowly. Maybe not trying to just get through your chapter in a day reading plan, but maybe slow down. Figure out the pauses in Scripture. Just read a little bit and try to understand it. Another cool way to study your Bible and to study Scripture is this. Sometimes there's these, ver these words that stick out to us. Like, when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck. I don't know what word you're version uses. But sometimes it's like, oh man, where's that word in the Bible? Where else is that in the Bible? And so for me, I looked at the Greek word, it's ephobethesan, uh, which means full of fear. Um, there's a lot of different tools you can use. I really like Blue Letter Bible because it's free and easy to use. Um, they have an app for it. You can go on it, but you can look up where these words are in scripture. It will help you understand what's going on. And so Matthew uses this word three other times in his account. So what are those times? In Matthew 17, it's when the disciples are at the Mount of Transfiguration. A cloud comes upon the mountain and they hear the word of God coming from the cloud. Guess what? It says that they were full of fear. They were seized with alarms and they dropped to their knees in terror. Okay. Oh. Matthew 21. Back to the scribes. Those scribes. The scribes wanted to arrest Jesus, but they were full of fear and terror because the people thought he was awesome. The last time Matthew uses it is the centurion at the cross. And Jesus has just died and he's breathed his last and an earthquake hits the city. Darkness comes across the land, and it says the centurion and those with him were full of fear, and they cried out. They cried out that truly this was the Son of God. And what's interesting is, and what's painful and what's tragic, is that Jesus Christ forgives the sins of one man, heals him, and he goes home, and the scribes miss it because they're stacking up their knowledge against Jesus. What's even more tragic is the crowds are full of fear. They're seized with alarm. Could this be the Messiah? Is this dude actually capable of forgiving our sins 
and being the one. They're full of alarm and terror. And what do they say? Oh, man, thanks to God that he gave authority to men, to, like, prophets. Not that he gave authority to this one man. Not that he gave authority. The Son of God is in their midst teaching them, and they miss out, and they thank God that God does cool things for humanity. 